0: out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in the I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little it is never too late and it is never enough Jewish history soundbites bringing alive the world of our glorious past here is our host live from Jerusalem Jewish historian and tour guide Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone to Jewish history soundbites with another episode this is Yehuda Geberer and being that it's uh, that September first this year, two thousand nineteen, is the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of the war, and there's a lot going on now in Poland, a place visited recently. and You saw the preparations, and it's in the media, and um, a lot of a lot of ceremonies and everything. It's the 80th anniversary of the German army's invasion of Poland, which. Uh, which commenced with uh, World War II, the most destructive and horrible war in human history, and had direct uh, ramifications, of course, for the Jewish people with the Holocaust and the Final Solution that happened in that context, and as well as the major upheavals around the world. World War II is something that um, we still, to a certain extent, all live in the shadow of till today. Um Remember, in any time you speak, I spoke to older people, they referred to it simply as the war. Uh, the greatest war in human history, of course, the greatest death toll sixty five million people approximately around the world were killed. Uh, you know we talk about the six million in the greater context of World War two over sixty million are killed. You're talking about an ama- mass of destruction there's nothing in world history that comes even close to nothing and uh, not only in the death toll but just in the changes that it brought about it's really something that influences everything and even though um, we'll think that it's major geopolitical and military strategy and it's not really relevant directly to the jewish people but even talking a little bit about the war from time to time gives us a little understanding of how we fit into the big picture. It's also important to understand in general how J- Jewish history does not take place in a vacuum. Um, Jewish history always takes place within the context of world history, and therefore it's important to understand the world history, the general history. In fact, the Rabb David Gins, the Tzemach David, uh, Talmud of the Ramal, and the Maral lived in the 1500s wrote a history book, a very rare occurrence for Jews of that time, especially someone of his stature. He's buried in Prague, been to his cover as well with groups when we go to Prague. And he wrote history books, and he wrote one volume on Jewish history, another volume on general history. And in the introduction to his his uh, volume on general history, he explains why it's important to understand and know general history as well. But that's really a topic of the Tzemach David, who was a fascinating person, also a great scientist, and he was also a big Mekobo, and the Talmud of the Maharaim, the Ramon a whole story. But what's important for us is that whenever I lecture on the Holocaust or World War II, I explain that that on the most basic level, for we have to understand what World War II was, because otherwise we'll never understand The Jewish people today will never understand the Holocaust, will never understand any of that destruction if we don't understand World War II. And just just at the most basic level, we're talking about the invasion of Poland, uh, September 1st, 80th anniversary. If Hitler would have never invaded Poland, then the Holocaust would have never happened, because that's where the Jews were. Um, Three and a half million Jews were living in Poland at the time. That's where the bulk of his victims were. 50% of the Holocaust victims, 3 million of them we from Polish Jewry. That was the center of Jewish life. So that's just, just the invasion of Poland. As far as our story is concerned, for sure there's direct ramifications. But what I want to speak about is the actual beginning of the war. If there's one misunderstanding that I have on every single trip, and I want to finally correct it and clear it up is that every single trip I have, it comes up at some point, no matter which country we get to, because World War Two inevitably comes up, even if the topic is Hasidus, or the Rama or anything else. But World War Two obviously is going to come up and when you're on a trip in Europe. and And there's always that one guy, or more than one guy, who says, oh, the Polish army, didn't they give up without a fight? Or didn't they meet the the uh, Germans with horses when the Germans came with tanks or some other uh, comment in that regard. And then I usually either try to switch topics or if I see there's genuine interest in finance, then I tell them what I'm about to tell talk about today, um, just to understand what was going on in Poland at that time. The Polish army definitely had a, a very reasonable war strategy and they did not meet the German tanks with horses, and they didn't give up without a fight. They actually fought quite bravely. And just the numbers is is the best way to know. There was a month of warfare. First of all, it took a month. It didn't take a week. If you compare it to other countries that Hitler and the Wehrmacht, the German army, conquered in Europe in 1940 and 41, um, most other countries went much quicker, right? The low countries, Belgium and Holland, took less than a week each. Yugoslavia, also about a week. The great French army, which was the most powerful army in Europe, supposedly it took about six weeks. Norway was less than a month. Most other countries it took very very quick, of course, Greece was an exception. They fought very bravely in Greece, The great Greek army backed up by the British, and Poland held out for a month. No one was able to hold out against the Wehrmacht. The German army was the only modernized army in the world. They were only mechanized army their army strategy was the only one that was modern. Everyone else was still in a World War I defensive strategy. And the blitzkrieg, the lightning warfare that the German uh, general staff had come up with, was completely unstoppable by any army in Europe. So definitely to hold them out for a month enough is ready to show that there was a, a very strong defense. Not only that, but in the casualties that they inflicted. The German army sustained 44,000 casualties to the armed forces in a month of fighting, including 11,000 that were fatal. In other words, there were 11,000 German soldiers killed during the Poland campaign. They lost over 500 planes during the Poland campaign. That's not called fighting without, um, without a plan. Not only that, but they had a very legitimate plan. The plan was that since they were caught by surprise, somewhat by surprise, it wasn't a total surprise, which I'll get to in a second, and um, the, the, um, the idea was that they would fall back, the army would regroup in eastern Poland, they would fall back to create a defensive line in eastern Poland, and then they would regroup, and then they would strike back at the German army. That was number one. Number two, on September 3rd, 1939, the British and French Uh, governments declared war on Germany, honoring their pact with Poland. That really started World War II. It didn't really start on September 1st, but once British England and France were involved, that began World War II. So if England and France are involved, they declared a war, so presumably they're going to strike Germany from the West. If they're going to hit Germany from the West, the two mighty armies of England and France, that means that Germany will have to transfer troops and tanks and planes from Poland to defend their western border, right, against an invasion by England and France. And if that happens, then the regrouped Polish army in eastern Poland will be able to easily strike back the weakened German army because most of them went to the west. Now two things happened. Number one, England and France were didn't do anything. They They declared a war and then they didn't do anything. They didn't bomb germany they didn't invade germany they, they didn't they literally did nothing um they completely betrayed uh the poles in a very not nice way and they didn't they didn't fight germany and germany did not have to transfer a single tank or plane or a unit to the west to defend the western front that was unnecessary that was number one that happened number two and this is what's directly relevant to the jewish people which is what i want to get to is russia invades eastern poland the polish army is regrouping in eastern poland on september 17th 1939 the soviet union invades eastern poland how does that happen and why does that happen and of course we'll get to why it happened and how it happened but once it happens and the soviet union invades eastern poland where the whole polish army is regrouping and forget about any defense, forget about any regrouping. They're now being swallowed up by two lions on the west and the east, the Soviet Union in the east and Germany in the west, and they don't have a chance. And then the defense collapses, and Warsaw is the last to fall on October, at the end of September, the beginning of October 1939. But what really happens with the beginning, the beginning of the story is not on September 1st. The beginning of the story is August 23rd. A week earlier, uh, before that, the the a, a non-aggression pact is signed between Nazi Germany and Soviet Communist Russia, shocking the world. Um, Hitler had been railing and riling for years about how the Soviet Union and communism is the ultimate enemy. It's the ultimate antithesis to everything that Nazism stands for, and therefore. He's the ultimate enemy. Stalin is, 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 is a big, the biggest problem the world has. And here he signs a non-aggression pact. The two foreign ministers, v- Vyas Lechev, and I for sure pronounced that wrong, Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister, and Joachim von Ribbentrop, the German foreign minister, um, sign this uh, non-aggression pact between uh, Germany and the Soviet Union. And each one of them had their own reasons for doing it, but which I'm not going to get into, it's too long. And they, they agree, the secret clause of that agreement was to divide Poland between them. They were going to, and it, as soon as Hitler invades Poland, Stalin should invade Poland with the Red Army. And they're going to divide Poland and eventually also the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. They're going to divide him between themselves, divide and conquer. And that was the pact that they made in general the the soviet german non aggression pact which in russia till today they're trying to forget that it ever happened that recently was in the 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 uh, the great patriotic war museum in minsk which was you know formerly part of the soviet union belarus and the the museum is fantastic i was there for hours and it was really well done a lot of propaganda but the soviet german non aggression pact received uh, not more than a sentence and maybe a little picture. It was really brushed over in that museum, and understandably so. It's a chapter that they definitely want to forget in that part of the world. And But what it does teach is that the extremes, we very often think of the political uh, re- the spectrum as a 180-degree as a, um, uh, spectrum, and that the two extremes are so far apart from each other that they're the ultimate extremes the extreme li- right and the extreme left are at opposite ends of the room at opposite ends of the political spectrum but here nazism which is the ultimate and extremist form of the right extreme nationalism and militarism and racism also and a lot of other things and 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 communism is the extreme left right there's uh, that's what communists is in their economy and their philosophy um, officially, equality for everything. I'm not going to get into what communism is and what it isn't and what it's never been and what it shouldn't be either. Uh, at this point, that should be for another time. But um, but they're the extreme right and the extreme left, and they meet at the same table. Ribbentrop, von Ribbentrop, and Mold He was very machped, by the way, that he should be called by his title von Ribbentrop because it didn't come to him easy. He, von is a, a title, like Sir in 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 England and other countries. Each one has an, in Holland it's Van, in 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 uh, in Germany it was Von. Anyone who was an aristocrat had a title. And Ron, von Ribbentrop actually did not have a title. He was he worked for a seltzer company. That's why he knew so many languages. He was good in the foreign ministry because he knew languages. He traveled the world a lot. He was in charge of sales of a major German uh, seltzer company, and he he was in business. He wasn't a, a titled. Uh, a landowner, or or a prince, or a nobleman, or aristocrat, but his aunt had a title from her husband, and she didn't have any children. And he convinced her on her deathbed, basically, to will him his title, to will him her title. So he inherited a title essentially, and he was always very, very personal about that. And one time in a fight that he took a shouting match took place in front of Hitler, actually, between him and Hermann Göring, the head of the Luftwaffe, among other things and Goering referred to him as a seltzer, seltzer salesman Ribbentrop, and Ribbentrop shouted back, that's von Ribbentrop to you. So he was actually very, very muckbit that people referred to him by his correct uh, title. And um, so in any event, the, the they, they, they sit here because in the political spectrum is not actually 180 degrees, it's 360 degrees. And the extremes meet at the end, and the most extremes are able to meet. And that's the way to understand this weird pact that took place between two uh, vicious and ruthless leaders, Hitler and Stalin. They're able to come together because ultimately the extremes meet, and it doesn't make a difference if it's on the left or on the right. But the reason that that has ramifications for um, the Jewish people is very simply because it divides Poland and eventually the Baltic states also. Um, Eastern Pol- Poland falls under Russian control. And therefore, the first two years of the war, until Hitler renegs, renege, someone corrects me on that word, um, on his treaty, and invades the Soviet Union in June 1941, until that time, there's almost two years where Eastern Poland and the Baltic states are under Soviet control, not under Nazi control. And people escape from Western Poland to Eastern Poland to be under Soviets. And some people think it's worse to be under the Soviets, so they even escape to German area control. And other people are trying to escape altogether from both places with not much success. Um, so there's this amazing flight to the east, especially leaving Warsaw during the bombing of Warsaw. You have to understand that between twenty-five and 50,000 citizens of Warsaw are killed during the bombing, the German bombing of Warsaw. Among them are many Jews. Jews are a third of the city, a third of the population of Warsaw. So during the bombing of Warsaw, excuse me, (coughs) many of them are killed. Um, We can assume that it's in proportion of their numbers. A third of the the bombed out casualties, civilians of Warsaw, are Jews. A few of them were famous. Ramesh Bitzal Alter, the Gerab's younger brother, his son, who was married to his brother's daughter, in other words, he married his first cousin, the son-in-law of the Emre was killed. When we go to his kever outside the Radzimina Rebbe's kever in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, it says on it, Ben Reb Meishe Bitzal Shlita, right? Reb Meishe B'tzalel was killed in Treblinka three years later. His son, who was killed during the bombing of Warsaw, was the son-in-law of the Ger Rebbe, he has a kever in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. The same thing with, in, the, in the same cemetery with the Piazzetzna Rebbe's uh, son and daughter-in-law, there. The Aish the Piotetsner Rebbe, who also doesn't have a cover, he's killed in Travniki, in in near Lublin in, in November of 1943, his son and daughter-in-law are killed in the bombing of Warsaw, and they're buried next to the Piotetsner Rebbe's wife, who had died earlier, and and they're 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 uh, also in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. They're all three of them, the closest relatives of the Piotetsner Rebbe, who we don't have his covers. I bring groups there, and I tell them that this is the closest you'll get to the Piyot Rebbe. His name is engraved on these kvarim. And all of them, it says Shlita, because they all died when he was still alive. It says Shlita on the cover. The Piyot Rebbe is still alive. And his name is Adam Atzeva, and that's the closest you'll get to being by some sort of memorial of the Piyot Rebbe, who doesn't have a So these people, these Jews who die, they're victims of Germans, but they're not Holocaust victims. They're not killed in the final solution, they're killed by Germans during World War II, but they're not Holocaust victims, which also is a unique story. So that's the bombing of Warsaw. But the bombing causes a major flight to the east. Who goes? Many leaders, political leaders, intellectual leaders, writers, uh, uh, all types, um, you know, and rabbis, rebbe's, rabbis. There's an amazing flight to the east. Um, and also from the Hamoin Am, many, uh, many many, many, of them also, the masses, they're trying to get to the east, to get to the Russian zone, to get out of Warsaw, to get away from the Germans, to get away from the bombings. And there's this influx of refugees to the east. Many of them get to Vilna. You know, the two major Rebbes got to Vilna, the Majid Rebbe and Amshunav Rebbe, who were both in the Warsaw area. They both got out. The yeshivas run to Vilna. That's a story in itself. Vilna is independent part of lithuania for a while but then it becomes part of the soviet union and and there's this this flight to the east and this 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 also has ramifications later on in the holocaust the central poland that the germans took over is renamed the general Gouverneur Mant. and that's central poland and that's where they build the death camps that's where they build the ghettos and eventually the death camps treblinka Belzec, sobibor Whereas in Eastern Poland that's incorporated into the Soviet Union, it only gets invaded in the summer of 1941, and the Nazis destroy the Jewish communities there in the way that they kill the Jews in the Soviet Union in, in mass shootings outside of each town. They don't send them to death camps. so this this agreement, this non-aggression pact between Soviet Russia and Germany, has ramifications, many, many of which are felt by the Jews in, in, in Poland. It also has effect an effect on the war and an effect on Poland also. I just want to end off with another thought that's completely unrelated to the Jewish story, is that for some reason we consider September 1st, 1939, the German army invasion of Poland, to be the beginning of World War II. And why would we assume that? Um, so if you'd ask other people, and, and for instance, in China, they would definitely not consider that the beginning of World War II. The reason World War II is considered a world war is because it was fought all over the world and almost every country in the world was involved. And the question is, where does the beginning start? Does the beginning start when it's all countries in the world involved or when the first shot is fired? And the first shot is fired probably in 1931, eight years earlier by the Japanese when they start fighting China. If you want to be more generous, you jump to 1937 when the Japanese Imperial Army invades Manchuria, which was a major campaign and a major destruction in China and, and the, the, the the horrible battles. That really is the beginning. And these battles take place in the Far East. And probably the most uh, important battle that takes place in the Far East at this time, and it's actually close to the invasion of Poland, is the Battle of Kalkin Gol, which is fought between Soviet Russia and the Japanese Imperial Army, not really the Imperial Army, the the Kwantung Army in China, and it's fought between Russia and Japan, and Russia makes a decisive victory against Japan. Georgi Zhukov, who's later the World War II hero, the great general of the Red Army, he's the one who has the victory against Japan, and this has a major effect on the strategy of World War II that the Japanese Army has decide to go south instead of north. They decide not to fight the Soviet Union, even when their ally Germany is fighting the Soviet Union. They decide to go to war against the United States. It affects Russia. They essentially decide to go ahead with the non-aggression pact with Germany, partly because of the victory in Kalkin-Gol. They, they have more confidence in the strength of the Red Army because of the, the uh, Battle of Kalkin-Gol. And why do we not consider any of these battles the beginning of World War II? The answer very simply is is because they didn't take place in Europe. They took place in the Far East. So as far as the West and the Western historians and the textbooks and what we're taught, anything that's not in Europe is not important. And therefore, September 1st, 1939, is the day that the entire world changed with German army invasion of Poland affecting the entire world and the destiny of the Jewish people. This was Yehudi Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to all these places, and hear the stories. You can follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.